Hope you had a wonderful holiday, and as Nick said earlier, enjoyed a good time around the table with family and friends, and most important, the turkey, right? Or ham, whatever your choice of, uh, of, of a meal is. My preference is both. I mean, why can't you have both on Thanksgiving? Thankfully, uh, my in-laws, we had both on Thanksgiving. We had a good time. We were in Georgia this past week, and... Um, Enjoyed spending time down there, and I, I don't know about you, but I was empty the next day. Uh, I mean, some of you may still be full from Thanksgiving, but I was empty the next day. My brother-in-law and, and my nephew, we went to uh, a steakhouse on Friday uh, afternoon for lunch. We went to Cabela's. We kind of had a, a guy's day on Friday. You know, the ladies did their thing th- uh, Thursday evening and during the night, and, and so we kind of did our thing on, on Friday. We went to Cabela's and looked at man stuff and... Uh, dreamed about the things we really wish we could have, and, and then we went and ate. I ate a 22-ounce cowboy ribeye. Can I get an amen? amen. And uh, finished it, and all the fixings, all of it, finished every bit of it, and I didn't have to pay for it. That's a good thing, is I did not have to pay for it. And then we went, and we went to a pawn shop and looked at guns, and then we went to a shooting range, and we shot for about an hour or so, and man, it was good. I had black stuff all over my hands. It was good to be able to shoot things and have a man day. Well, I'm glad to see you this morning. Uh, happy Thanksgiving. Welcome to Red Lane Baptist Church. Some of you may be visiting with us today. We're super excited that you're here. And I really do hope you had a, a good week. As you came in this morning, you probably or you should have received a little devotional book called The Christmas Code. I hope that every adult and student and child that can read got one of these. If you don't, if you didn't, then let us know. We can get one to you at some point during their service, but I want you to take this and use it this Christmas season. It's a devotion, 25-day devotion, that'll take you from December 1st all the way through Christmas, and uh, it's a good way for you to kind of get your mind and your heart around the whole Advent season and, and really uh, think through, pray through what God has done through uh, done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And then what we're going to do on Sunday mornings, beginning next Sunday, is we're going to use this as a, ple- a preaching platform. And so on December 2nd, well, I'll preach from uh, that idea that's in the devotion on December 2nd, the same for December 9th, and on and on and on through uh, Christmas season. But take this, use it. If you don't want to use it, I would encourage you to do this. Take it to a neighbor, take it to a friend, take it to a co-worker, and say, hey man, I, Christmas is coming. Here's a devotion I got at church. Maybe this will help you just kind of think through what Christmas is really all about. So use it as an evangelistic tool. But I think this will be a blessing to us this Christmas season. With that said, Christmas is a big deal always in our church, and so there's a lot of things happening, so make sure that you're looking in the bulletin. Last couple of weeks, we've been handing this flyer out in the bulletin that deceptively said Christmas at Red Lane, listing all of the different type of events and opportunities, and uh, uh, so one of those would be what we're preaching on through this month. Other would be we're going to have a, a major worship event uh, on December 16th, our choir and a worship team is going to do something special for us that day. And then obviously Christmas Eve is a really, really sweet time of fellowship and uh, just a, a, a worshipful time for us as a church. That, that service will be at 445 on Christmas Eve. And so I want to encourage you to go ahead and put that on your calendar and invite somebody to come with you. The place is usually packed on Christmas Eve. And then uh, just one more thing that goes along with this season, uh, Lottie Moon, which is Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which is our annual uh, 
dedicated special offering for international missions will begin uh, next week. The week of prayer will be December 2nd through December 9th, and so we'll uh, share more about that as we go forward throughout the month of December. But I want to encourage you just to, to ask the Lord, what would you put on my heart to give toward uh, missions so that the nations can hear the gospel? But uh, I believe David and Susan Dorner will be with us next week, as well as possibly uh, a, a man by the name of Gautam. Kishore? Is that how you say it? Where's Gloria? Kishore? Is that how you say his last name, Kishore? That's what I thought. That's how he looks on, on, online. But anyway, he, he's married to a young lady that's from um, a sister church in our area, and they're missionaries in India as well. We have worked with Gautam before in India as a translator. He's an awesome young man, a great giant in the faith, and uh, they're going to, hopefully both those couples will be with us next week. So Give them opportunity just to share a little bit. David and Susan just came off the field and are not going back, but they spent six, seven years or so there in South Asia. So with that said, I want to encourage you to take your Bible, if you will, and open with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and we're going to springboard from there, but uh, we're going to use this passage as we've used it before to lead us in a time of observing the Lord's Supper. You know, for the last three Sundays, really this whole month, we have been talking about things we should be thankful for as a Christ follower. And a lot of times when we begin to have that conversation with ourselves, we immediately go to monetary blessings or family or uh, materialistic type things, and those are good. We even may even go so far as to say, man, we're thankful that we have an opportunity to be born, to, ra- to be raised, and now to raise children in this great nation, and obviously we should be thankful for that. But in that discussion, in that conversation of what we should be grateful for, we should always be grateful for the three things we've looked at this past several weeks, and that is we should be thankful for the church for the church that God has given us and brought us into this family of God. We should be thankful for the gospel because that is the power of God for salvation in our lives. It's transformed us, and it is still the power of God to transform every person who's alive and who will ever live. And we should also, in that same vein, be thankful for the mission that, as a Christian, God has put us in. See, missions, as we've talked about, is not something for others, it's something for all of us. We're all to be engaged in the mission here and there. And so to carry on that theme and to really move us into what we're doing this morning, I want us to be thankful for salvation. Uh, Let's give God gratitude. Let's show our gratitude to Him for our salvation this morning as we observe the Lord's Supper, as we reflect on what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus has done in us those of us who are in relationship with him. You know, Jesus said there in Luke 19.10 that he came. He gave us really his purpose for coming there in that verse. He says, I come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so that just begs the question, who are those who are lost? Well, the Bible is very clear. We are all lost. Every person who's ever been born ever since the fall of humanity, has been born in a state of lostness, in a state of spiritual deadness. See, the Bible says that we are all lost. We've all sinned and fall short of God's glory, short of His holy and righteous standard. 
In fact, we've gone so far as to reject his design. We want nothing to do with that design. Therefore, Jesus, God the Son, is the one who came to make a way where we had no way to God. We were rebellious sinners, out of fellowship with him, out of communion with this holy God. And Jesus, God the Son, is the one who came to make a way. And So how does this happen? How did this happen? I mean, the very thought of someone who hates God, who wants nothing to do with God, being embraced by the one who he hates, being welcomed into the family of God is something that is absolutely unimaginable. It's a farce. It's something that's a tragedy. It makes literally no sense, and yet sinners being sought out and redeemed by God. As we look at the Bible, that is the absolute meta-narrative. That's the grand story. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's about God coming to humanity and making a way for sinful, lost human beings to come into relationship and into fellowship with this holy God. And so today as we prepare ourselves as believers and followers of Jesus Christ to participate in this supper, this communion, we would really do well to remember what this meal is all about. I've told you before that in the Old Testament there are several sacred assemblies, these uh, events that are listed there where God's people would collectively gather together for the purpose of worship, for the purpose of repentance of both personal and corporate sin. We've seen it in the book of Nehemiah where the people of God gathered before the, uh, before the Lord and together confessed their cor- corporate sin, past as well as present. These occasions where people would gather to remember the blessings of God on them and as well as to anticipate future blessings. I think one of the good things about the Lord is that we can expect Him not just to be good to us today, not just remember what He's done for us yesterday, but we can anticipate God's going to continue to be good to us day after day after day. Now, we may not be good to God, but He's always going to be good to us. So these sacred assemblies... In the Old Testament, we read that there were times for God's people to gather and confess and repent of their sin. There were times where they would renew their covenant relationship with the Lord and return to Him in faithful love and as well as obedience. There were times for worship and sacrifice. There were times for feasting and fasting. God's people like us today had a tendency to stray. Anybody in here want to confess this morning that you have a tendency to stray from the Lord? We all should and could raise our hands to that. We have a tendency to walk away from God. We know the goodness of God. We know how gentle and kind He's been toward us. And yet we have the propensity to walk away, to stray, to walk at a guilty distance. The people of God in the Old Testament understood this. And so they would come together in these holy and sacred assemblies to confess sin and move back into communion and fellowship with Him. And so this morning, that's what this meal is all about. The Lord's Supper is a ceremonial meal whereby we simply remember and celebrate the grace of God that has been poured out upon us. In it, we reflect upon Jesus' sacrifice. In it, we look at what the price and the cost of this sacrifice really was, what it took to bring us into fellowship with God the Father. And so what is it that brings us into communion, into fellowship with a holy and righteous God? What is it that bridges unholy and sinful to holy and righteous? The Bible tells us that it is the blood of Jesus Christ shed upon the cross for our sins. We find this answer in many places, but we find it 
here in Acts chapter 8 as well. In Acts chapter 8, one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible, which I say that a lot because they're all my favorite. I don't know about you, but I love the Bible. I love the, the story of, of, of the gospel. I love the story of redemption. I love the story of how God works his way into a sinful person's life and redeems and transforms. And that is exactly what is taking place here in this great chapter. Here we find Philip, this deacon who's been run out of Jerusalem. Him and his brethren, they've left Jerusalem. Now they're scattered. And rather than hiding, Philip goes down. He goes north, but he goes down in elevation to the Samaritans. And there he begins to preach the gospel. And people are coming to faith in Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit tells him to get up and to go to this desert place, this road that leads to Gaza. And there on this desert road, this deserted place, this Uh, a place where there's no cities, there's no towns, there seems to be no activity, but on this road he finds a man, this court official from Ethiopia who'd been to Jerusalem. He finds him heading back to Ethiopia, reading a copy of the book of Isaiah. And there in that uh, situation, there on that road, Philip approaches him and begins to share with him the good news of Jesus Christ that transforms his life. Look with me in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 29. Luke, the writer of this book, tells us, he says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. I love how Philip didn't beat him around the bush. He didn't kind of lazy or, or, uh, lazily kind of get to where he was supposed to go. No, he runs to him with the gospel. And so he comes to him and he asks him this question. Do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, and he says, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. And if you scroll down to verse 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with his scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And in I think I've told you this before, but probably in most of your Bibles, verse 37 is in the footnote because it's not included in some of the earlier manuscripts. But this is what those later manuscripts recorded. And Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. It's an awesome story. An awesome story how Philip comes and he takes the word of God and and using the word of God, he tells this Ethiopian man how God had created him for himself, created him for this relationship, created him to be in fellowship with God. And he, in that conversation, explains how God has a design for his life, a perfect design for his life, and that if he would walk and live in that design, he could experience all of the blessings, all of the goodness that God desires to give him. But in this telling of the good news, Philip also tells him the bad news. He tells this Ethiopian that just like you and I, he is in sin. He has rejected God. He has rejected that design for his life. He's he's sinned, and that sin has separated him from God. It's created what we call brokenness there, and, and this brokenness is wreaking havoc upon his life. You see, the reason the Ethiopian went to Jerusalem was because he was seeking someone or something to fix him. 
was going there for a religious purpose. He was going there probably because what he was experiencing in his native religion wasn't bringing him a sense of peace, but he had heard that there's a God in Israel. He had heard that there's a God in Jerusalem, and so he goes to Jerusalem to find this God, and yet in Jerusalem he does not find that God because God is not in a religion. God is in a relationship, but God is seeking this man out, and he's there on the road, headed back to to Ethiopia, and he sends Philip with the gospel to tell this man that I've got good news for you, that God's got a design for your life, and even though your sin has broken that design, I will remake you, I will make you new. Philip here explains that God uses the brokenness in in our lives to get our attention, to create a desire for something more. He goes on to tell him how God can fix this brokenness. That, but there's something that God, that God had done to fix it, and that is through his son there on the cross, dying and shedding his blood for the remission of our sins. Philip explained that Jesus Christ, the man that he had probably heard of there in Jerusalem who had been crucified, more than likely the, the, the whole world at that time had heard the news about this one who had been crucified, and he tells him that this man, this Jesus, is God the Son who came to earth to fix our brokenness. He was crucified, he was buried, and there on the third day he rose victoriously from the dead. And Now because of this sacrifice and because of this resurrection, he and we can be forgiven of all of our sin, past, present, and future. We can recover the design God has for us in our lives. Philip told this man, that knowing what Jesus had done was not enough. You see, this morning, you can know what Jesus has done and it's not enough. I knew the gospel for many years of my life, but it was never enough. Head knowledge is never enough. It's got to be a faith. It's got to be a belief in what Jesus has done, not a mental ascent, not a saying, yeah, I believe that, that Jesus is God, and I believe that Jesus died on the cross. But no, it's you stepping out and saying, I'm appropriating that into my life. I'm staking my life on it. There's no hope outside of what Jesus has done for my life. If it was good enough just simply to believe, the demons would be redeemed today. The book of James tells us that the demons even believe and shudder. We've got to have faith. Philip told this man, you've got to believe in Jesus. You've got to appropriate that into your life. And you do that through repentance of sin. You confess that sin. You turn from that sin. And you turn to Jesus Christ. The story tells us here that the Ethiopian man, upon hearing this, immediately desires to repent of his sin, to place his faith in Jesus for salvation. See, he wanted to completely identify with Christ. How do we know that? It's because the Bible tells us here that this man looks at Philip and says, there's water right there. What is preventing me from being baptized? You say, I thought baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't save you. There's no redemptive power in water. I tell people all the time when I baptize them. In other states that I live, like Alabama, I would say, this is good old, good old Tennessee River water. It's probably got oil in it from all the barges going up and down, but it's just regular water. Here I would say, this is good old cold, uh, fresh, 400 uh, feet down type water coming up out of our well. might have a little bit of metal in it because it's from a well, but it's just water. There's no saving power in this water. And so baptism doesn't save you. What baptism does is it's a public declaration, a public identification with the God you're placing your faith into. Many times, if not most times in the Bible, 
What we see in, in baptism was a person bapti- being baptized upon their profession of faith. Does that mean they were being saved by going under the water? No, they were being saved because they had already placed their faith in Jesus. But in the same moment, if you will, they were being placed under the water, publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. And yet this morning, talk about this a little bit more in just a moment, but this morning perhaps we have people here who have placed their faith in Jesus, but for whatever reason, they've yet to be baptized. Why is that? Why is it that we can, we can declare our faith in Jesus, but we won't declare it through baptism? We need to declare it through baptism because that's the way we publicly identify with Jesus Christ. But here's this man who identifies with Jesus as it's being illustrated through baptism. And so that day, this high-ranking court official, this very important man, heard the gospel, places his faith in Jesus, and publicly identifies with Christ through baptism. He didn't care what his servants thought. He didn't care what perhaps someone on the road passing would have thought. He simply said, I am not ashamed of Jesus, and I want to identify completely with him. So what is it that brings sinners into communion and fellowship with holy God. It's none other than the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It's none other than his resurrection from the dead. Those things is what brings rebellious sinners into this relationship. And as we observe this Lord's Supper, this is a picture of all of that. It's us understanding that Jesus was bruised for our iniquity, as the Bible says, that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, that we can have faith in Jesus because of what he did. And so we are, we are recreating the crucifixion through this meal. The body is represented by the bread. The juice represents the blood of Jesus as it's being poured out for sinful humans. See, the Bible says that we are sinners. We are all condemned. We're under the wrath of God the Father. But Jesus there on the cross took our sin upon himself. He is the one who experienced the full wrath of God the Father. The beauty of what this meal reminds us of is this, is that you and I don't have to experience what we rightfully should have to experience. Eternal separation from God. The complete and full wrath of God upon our sins. I think sometimes we, especially maybe in America, we look at the, the, what the Bible teaches about eternal punishment. What the Bible teaches about damnation and, and this wicked word like hell. I think sometimes we want to marginalize that because we look at it and we say, that's not fair. It's not fair that we would be condemned to hell for all of eternity. That someone would burn and literally be forsaken by God for all of eternity. And yet we say that, but we don't understand the magnitude of our own sin. That we have infinitely sinned against an infinite God. Therefore, the wrath that should be poured out upon us is an infinite wrath. But because of Jesus and what he's done, we can stand clean, we can stand redeemed, we can stand forgiven, and we can stand in fellowship with God because Jesus took the wrath of God for us. That ought to get someone excited this morning. I was kind of weak, but you're still full from Thanksgiving, I understand. You're still lethargic from the turkey. It's why you should have eaten a steak. But I wanted to sleep after that 22-ounce steak, by the way. That's why we went shooting. Think about what Jesus has done for us. Man, i got to hurry. Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Pastor, did Jesus really have to die on the cross? 
According to that verse, he did. Absolutely. There's no forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood. Payment has to be made. That's why in the Old Testament you read the Levitical uh, teachings there, all about the sacrifices. Something had to die to pay the penalty, to redeem for sin. Sacrifices of a lamb and goats and doves and all of the things that were sacrificed, they were simply sacrifice in preparation of an ultimate sacrifice. See, those things were never good enough. We'll either atone, or I should say this, we should, we'll either pay for our sins ourselves, or Jesus will pay for our sins himself, and one gives us life, one continues in our death. I'll take Jesus' death because it leads to life. And through his sacrifice, my sins, though like crimson, can become white like wool, according to Isaiah 1.18. So this morning, as we approach this meal, how should we approach it. Three things, and I think I've shared these three things with you before. We approach it, number one, in relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded this morning that as we approach this meal, it's not a religious meal. It's not a meal that you just kind of go through the motions, you take the wafer and you take the juice and, and you do your little religious duty for a moment. No, this is something that you're to take in relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about religion, it's about relationship. Jesus didn't come and die so that we could walk in our sinful religious activity. Jesus came and died so that we could walk in holiness and in relationship with him for all of eternity. And so as we approach this meal, we must and always should approach it in relationship with Jesus. You see, when Paul addresses this issue to the church there in Corinth, as he speaks to their abuse of the Lord's Supper, and we're reading, we just started 1 Corinthians a couple days ago in our devotional time. If you're reading with us, you begin to see the sinfulness in this church. Chapter 5 or chapter 6 talks about the gross immorality in the church, but they had another sin that was very prominent there. That was an abuse of the Lord's Supper. They used this as a time for gluttony. They used this as a time for drunkenness. And so Paul speaks and writes to correct their sinful behavior. He's speaking here, we need to remember, to believers. He's writing to the church of Corinth. And the concept of church in the New Testament was always redemptive. It was always incarnational. It was always a, a, a people who had been changed through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not religious people. Relationship people. So the Lord's Supper is reserved here for those who are in relationship with Jesus. It's not a religious ritual meal whereby we can simply appease or please God for a time. It's a meal of remembrance. It's a meal whereby we are confronted with the reality of our sin, but at the same time the goodness of our Savior. We remember, <laughs> I was lost and dead in trespasses and sins, but God stepped in my life. I was, I was without hope, but the living hope became my hope. It's to be approached in relationship with Jesus. Secondly, it's to, to be approached in identification with Jesus. See, when this Ethiopian eunuch responded to the gospel in faith, the first thing he wanted to do was publicly declare this, to the world, to publicly identify with Jesus Christ through baptism. As I said earlier, the early church, many times, if not most times, their public confession of faith in Jesus was their baptism. 
They would come, they would hear the preaching of the gospel, and their public declaration of faith in Jesus was them being placed under the water. Man, what if we did that? Did it that way these days? What if every Sunday morning we had a baptism set up here, and as people heard the gospel and responded to the gospel, their first initial declaration of faith in Jesus was us plunging them under the water? That got to be a good thing. That's the way they did it back then. These professions of faith and baptism were simultaneous. But today, uh, for whatever reason, and I think I know some of the reasons, we've separated them. In our response to what other denominations teach falsely, we have, we have uh, separated these two acts. We've really, in doing that, we've devalued baptism. But I want to just tell you this morning, baptism is important. It's not important for you to be saved, but we know that because the guy on the cross, the thief on the cross, said, Jesus, remember me. And today, or Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. He wasn't baptized. He was crucified on the cross. So baptism doesn't redeem a person, but it is a symbol of what Jesus has done in redeeming them. But it's important. It's important to be publicly identified with Jesus. That's why the early church was baptized. It was their public demonstration of the inward change in their, in their lives. It pictured the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, as well as their own death, burial, and resurrection of the believer. I've taught you this before, but every time we baptize someone, when that person is placed under the water, we say, buried with Christ in baptism. So we're saying we're, that we believe in Jesus' death and burial. We're also saying we believe that as a follower of Jesus, I've died to Christ. Nevertheless, it's not I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. So I'm buried with Christ. I'm dying to myself, but I'm raised to new, walk, new life in Jesus Christ. That's what we're saying. So it's important to be identified with Jesus through baptism. And ever since the early church, we've baptized followers of Jesus Christ by immersion, placing them under the water, following every example we have in Scripture. A third way to approach this meal is this. In fellowship with Jesus. If you want to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 real quick, or if you got a, uh, I know m- many people use your phone or an iPad or something along those lines, if you want to scroll over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I, I mentioned, alluded to it earlier, but Paul here is going to teach these Corinthians about how to approach the Lord's Supper in fellowship. Beginning in verse 27, if you don't have a Bible or a tablet, you can look at it on the screens. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and ha- even some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What's Paul doing here? He's simply warning these believers to not approach the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. See, he wants us to not partake in the meal if we have unconfessed sin in our life, something we're holding on to. Maybe it's a secret sin. Maybe it's a habitual sin. Maybe it's whatever, but you're just unwilling to give it up. Paul would tell us today, as he told the Corinthians, don't take of this meal 
We should take it in a worthy manner because when we take it any other way, God's judgment comes into our lives. It's through sickness. It's even through death. We need to approach this meal in fellowship with God and to approach it seriously. So this morning, are there actions, habits, strongholds in in our lives that need to be confessed to Jesus and repented of? If so, there's time for that. I love what 1 John 1, 9 says, if we are faithful to confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us of those sins. All of those sins. And so this morning, we approach in relationship, we approach in identification, and we approach in fellowship. Today, I hope you're thankful for salvation. I mean, if there's something to be glory to God about, it's salvation. If there's something to get excited about, it's salvation. We can get excited about our football team. Some of us are not excited about our football team right now. We can get excited about basketball. We can get excited about Christmas coming up and, and many of you shop this week and kids are ecstatic about it and, and just anticipating that morning or that evening or whenever you open presents. We've been excited about all the parties and Christmas events we're going to attend this, this season. But if we don't get excited about Jesus Christ, we are of, the most, we are of all people the most to be pitied. We have a hope. We have a salvation in our life that has changed us. And so this morning, we're thankful for that salvation. Purchased for us there on the cross. This morning, I wonder, as you hear this, you're just beginning to reflect upon your own life. I want to ask you a question. Are you in relationship with Jesus? I didn't ask if you were a member of Red Lane. I didn't ask if you were a member of another church. I didn't ask if you were a good religious person. I didn't ask if you grew up in church. I asked, are you in relationship with Jesus Christ? There's a big difference. Again, the demons believe and shudder. So I didn't ask if you believed the Bible. I didn't ask if you believed it really was God's Word. I didn't ask if you Believe that Jesus was resurrected. I asked, are you in a relationship? Have you placed your faith in him? Have you confessed and turned from that sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? If so, the Lord suffers for you this morning. Have you been baptized post-conversion? You came to, into relationship with Jesus Christ and you publicly identified through baptism. If so, the Lord's Supper is for you this morning. If not, if you've not been baptized after your, follow, after your conversion, after you follow Jesus as Lord and Savior this morning, I would ask that you pass the elements along, and, and that needs to be what you do. You say, Pastor, I need to get this right. We'll baptize you next Sunday. We'll baptize you this week if you want. Let's get it right. Be identified with Jesus. And then thirdly, this is probably where most of us get hit this morning. Are you in fellowship with Jesus? Or is there sin that's hindering that fellowship? Think about it as a friendship. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus is a friend to sinners. And so think about it as a friendship. All of us have friends. And when something bad happens between friends, just a little thing sometimes, sometimes it's huge and gross, but anything that begins to disturb the friendship that we have with someone else, 
that creates a greater and greater and greater divide. And so we are no longer as friendly as we once were. We avoid them. We don't talk to them. We talk about them sometimes. That's really what happens when we're walking in sin before the Lord. He hasn't walked away from us. We've walked away from Him. I say it like this all the time. We're walking at a guilty distance. Maybe that's you this morning. And you've got unconfessed sin. This morning, this is an opportunity as we prepare our hearts to confess that sin, to repent of that sin, and to ask for His forgiveness. The forgiveness is always available. And so this morning, as we move into a time of response, as Nick comes and plays softly, and as we sing in just a moment, I want to encourage you to use this time to reflect upon those three things. Do I need a relationship with Jesus? Do I need to publicly identify with Jesus? Do I need to repent and turn from sin and and be brought back into fellowship with Jesus? If any of those are true for you, I want to encourage you to come forward if needed. Maybe sit there at your seat. If you just need to confess sin, you just confess that at your seat. Maybe you need to come forward and get on your knees. Maybe you need to go to someone and say, brother or sister, I've wronged you. I've hurt you. And I want to ask for your forgiveness and make those things right so that you can be right with God. Amen? Does that make sense? Can we do that this morning? All right. Well, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for the sacrifice that you've made for us. I thank you for the blood that is shed upon the cross. I thank you for the way that it has made for us to be in relationship with the God who created us for himself. This morning, our deep desire is to know you more intimately, to experience your goodness. Lord, to enjoy your blessings forevermore. Father, whatever it may be that hinders us this morning, perhaps there's nothing in our lives that hinders us. We're walking closely with the Lord. I pray that's the case for, for all of us. Lord, if there's some guiltiness, if there's some distance between you and I. God, if there's no relationship at all, I pray this morning that we would have the courage and the faith to do what's necessary. I'm reminded of what those who stood around and heard Peter there on Pentecost preaching the gospel and they cried out with one voice and says, what should we do? What should we do? And Peter looked up and says, repent and be baptized. In other words, turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. God, may that be indicative of us this morning as we prepare our hearts to remember, to reflect, and to celebrate this wonderful salvation we have in Jesus through this meal. So Holy Spirit, would you lead this special special time this morning as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All around the room, let's